0: Second Timothy chapter 4, tonight we'll continue what we started last week with verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll spend our time tonight in verse 8. You might also kind of hold your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, for we'll be turning there in just a few moments. But first, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. But first, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. As we, as we mature as human beings... There does seem to be a progressive set of stages that we pass through in our motivation to do good. The first stage that, that we pass through is a fear of punishment. We don't want to get spanked by our parents for going out into the street. So, so we don't do it. We do good for, for a fear of punishment. The second motivation that we generally pass through in our maturity as human beings is the Desire for reward or an anticipation of reward. You do this with your grades and we'll go out to eat in this, in your favorite restaurant when the semester's over. And finally, we grow to a point in our human maturity where the motivation to do good is neither a fear of punishment or a desire for a reward, but simply love for those who are in leadership over us, our parents. I think of this as, as an adult child comes back into the home perhaps to visit, um, Their folks, uh, even maybe when they have a family later on, Uh, the the adult son or daughter doesn't come in uh, at a reasonable hour after going out and maybe visiting some friends in the city in which they grew up because they're afraid that mom and dad might punish them. They're also not going to come back at a reasonable hour because they they anticipate that mom might make a great breakfast for them in the morning if they just come in on time. You see, the more mature we get, the more, the more our motivation is love. So you may actually come in at a decent time because maybe you don't want to disturb your parents as you come back in and interrupt their sleep or maybe have them wonder if you ever got back okay. So, th- so love becomes perhaps the highest of all motivations to do good. And there's an obvious parallel, I believe, in the spiritual life. The lines are not clearly drawn and there's some overlap to be sure. The, the immature believer can and does sometimes serve or do good from an anticipation of a reward and, and perhaps even even from the motivation of love and the mature believer can do good because that mature believer is afraid of punishment. But there does seem to be the same type of progression and all three motivations are there. All three motivations are part of the scriptural revelation that we have. But on the whole, as we grow, our motivation to do good. Will move toward the motivation from love on the whole. Let me speak to one issue up front before we get into this, to our subject tonight, which is going to be the motivation from a, an anticipation of a reward. The second of the three. Some believers cringe at the mention of special rewards in heaven. Now, the concept is looked upon by some as crass. And undignified. How dare we serve because of a potential reward? But let's remember that it's the Holy Spirit who made it clear to us that these rewards are there for us. They are a real- reality and the rewards are mentioned so that we might be motivated to serve us. True, this isn't the highest motivation. But that doesn't mean that one whose motivation is for eternal reward, it doesn't have a pure motivation. Now, I want you to see that. There is a progression, but just because this is number two of three doesn't mean that this is an impure motivation. This is a real motivation, as long as it's kept in perspective. In verse seven, 6, 7, and 8, the, the verses we started last time and we complete this time, Paul is toward the end now. Paul is probably months away, maybe weeks. Who knows? Maybe it's even days away from being executed. And he says at the end of his life, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I love the way that he puts that. It's almost poetic. He doesn't say it's, it's time for my execution. It's time for my departure. And I cannot help but think of standing in, in front of a gate where an airplane is about to take off. And you have loved ones standing behind, and they're waving goodbye to you. And you're taking off on a plane. You haven't ceased to exist. You may end up in another country or another city. And the idea being that sometimes when loved ones die, we might need to, we might need to keep things in perspective. They're having a change of station. They're going to a different place, but it's still them. It's still them that go. And we need to remember that. And, and also remember that one day we're going to be on that plane, too. And we're going to be reunited with those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in itself should be something that makes us uh, joyful about the, pers- about the prospect of going to heaven. We will be reunited with believers that have gone before, and we don't have to fret about those that we leave behind, because those believers that we leave behind will join us again as well. And that's, so I, I love it the way that Paul puts it. The time for my departure has come. Then in verse 7, I have fought the, the good fight. I have finished the course I have kept the faith. One might look at that and say, well, Paul is fairly proud, is he not? You know, how, how could he evaluate himself that way? But I'm glad that he did, and I'm glad that he put it in writing. You know why? Because if the Apostle Paul, get this, if the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, couldn't honestly and objectively say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith then what hope is there for you and me? I mean, maybe not you, but I'm just going to say for me. What hope is there for me if Paul couldn't evaluate his life and say, I I completed that course? So I don't think this is prideful or arrogant at all. I I think this is right straight from the Holy Spirit, an honest and objective evaluation of his own life. I hope that we can do that, too. I hope that when we come to our deaths, we we won't regret the time that we've spent here on earth as having been wasted. All of us are going to have things that we regret. Paul has mentioned them in some of his letters. Surely there are things that he regrets. But this wasn't the time for it. This was the time to make an honest evaluation of, of how the whole of his life went. And on the whole, Paul was faithful, and he realized that he was faithful. And so he says that, and I'm glad that he did. I don't think it's pride, prideful or arrogant at all. And then finally, in verse 8, we started this last week, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We started with this last week and talked about the judgment seat of Christ. And remember, we do a distinction between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. We said the judgment seat of Christ was a judgment for believers only. In fact, in this context, it's a judgment for church-age believers only. It happens shortly after the resurrection of the church, also known as the rapture. And it takes place in heaven while the great tribulation is going on down on earth. And... And while the scene in in heaven is very solemn, the scene on earth is just utter destruction and chaos as the the end of the Jewish age takes place and Satan is is, uh, doing everything he can to try to establish order on earth and it's been demonstrated he can't do it. Then there was the great white throne judgment that occurs almost a thousand plus years later and that's a judgment for unbelievers only. There's only only one verdict there, and that's condemnation. If you make it to the great white throne, you're in big trouble. So there's no sense in trying to cram for that exam. You're, You're already finished by the time you get there. But all of us, all of us here in this room, I trust, are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it is the judgment seat of Christ. Paul talks in this verse about him being the righteous judge, a fair judge. I don't know about you, but I have had evaluations that were unfair. I've had evaluations that were grotesquely unfair. I mean, so unfair that you want to just stand on top of the roof and scream. That was unfair. They, had, they don't have the facts. What are they thinking? They're lying. And you have too. All of us have been unfairly evaluated, whether it's by a professor or or, or by a, an employer. Heaven forbid if it's by a spouse or, or a child. Sometimes a son or daughter can unfairly evaluate a parent. And by the way, just anybody that's young enough to do this, let's go ahead and get it out of your system right now that you want to evaluate your parents as being bad parents just just stop it don't don't even say that. That makes you look so crass. it makes you it makes you look so undignified to do that. Yes, your parents weren't perfect, and neither are you. So stop it and get over it, get over it and move on. That's my only editorial comment for tonight I, I, I promise the rest of the time I'll stay with my with my notes. But, but Paul makes sure that we understand this is a righteous judge. Jesus Christ is going to have all the facts, and he's going to be very fair, and he's going to be very righteous in his evaluation. And so Paul is confident that because Jesus Christ is fair, and because he is righteous, that he's going to, to make the right decision with regard to his future reward. In this passage, in chapter 4, verse 8, there are really two major issues that need to be discussed from an exegetical standpoint. The first one is, what is the nature of the crown of righteousness? And the second is, what does Paul mean by his appearing? Those are two issues that commentators discuss. I'd like to cover those now, and then we'll talk about the concept of rewards. With regard to the crown of righteousness, some commentators take the crown of righteousness to mean the crown which is righteousness. This view would see the imputation of righteousness to the believer to be an act that has only partially been fulfilled. And then when we get to heaven, the, the God's righteousness will, will become the ultimate, an ultimate fulfillment. I would reject that idea. In other words, the crown of righteousness is God's righteousness that he's giving to you. you. You see their point. I disagree with their point, but that's that's what some would say. The reason I disagree is the scriptures don't speak of it that way at all. When we talk about justification, it is an instantaneous act. And we're justified by grace through faith. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 31, also in several places in the book of Galatians. And by the way, if you've ever taken a test and you're having to guess about something when it comes to justification, guess Romans or guess Galatians. You're probably going to be right in one of those two things. But justification is an instantaneous act. So I don't take the crown of righteousness to be God's righteousness that he gives to you at the moment uh, or at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, it, it would be a little unusual in my view to call it a crown if that was the case. It wouldn't be necessary if it was only his righteousness. So I respectfully... Uh, disagree with that. The crown of righteousness, on the other hand, appears to be a special reward over and above just being there. We, we should pause for a minute. Just being there is going to be great, isn't it? You know, it, it, you know the worst place in heaven is incredible. You know, and I don't, I don't want to do this because some, you know, I don't want to give you an excuse not to serve, but if you live the rest of your Christian life and then serve one minute you're still going to heaven. There's some theological disagreement about that, but they're wrong. You will go to heaven because you are justified, and, and there's no losing your salvation. And even if you get, if you, if you don't get a well done at the judgment seat of Christ, it's still going to be a place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. The old things have passed away. It's still going to be that. But why do that? Jesus Christ went all the way for you on the cross, you know, He could have easily said, you know, those people are not worth saving. And upon further review, those people are not worth saving. And he would have been perfectly justified to do so. He would have been perfectly just to have left us in just condemnation. That's why they call it just condemnation. We were fairly condemned. And he would have left, he could have been perfectly fair to do that, but he didn't do it. He poured out every ounce of love that he had in every cell of his body to save you. And that's the way that you would thank him for it? Not repay him. I'm not. And there's, we don't serve to repay. it. You can never do it. It'd be blasphemous to try. But that's the way you would thank him for it? No, it's not. Any more than if someone was to rescue you from some other place of physical danger and really rescue you, you wouldn't spend the rest of your life thumbing your nose at them and say, well, I don't have to thank you for that. I don't have to love you. I'm already rescued. That's, that's silly, isn't it? So yeah, if, if you choose the rest of your life to not to serve the Lord, you will be there. Now, you won't have any special reward, but it'll still be an incredible place. But that's not what we're called upon to do. That's not the expected norm for the believer, any more than it's expected norm for one of us if, if somebody else rescues us physically or pulls us out of a tight jam in some way. So that would be silly. The crown of righteousness does appear to me to be a special reward over and above our eternal life, which is fantastic again, but it's over and above that. Now, if you may ask me after the class is over tonight, well, listen, how can you be in a place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, the old things have passed away, a place of perfect happiness, and then there's a reward over and above that? I don't know, but I'll tell you what. The Scriptures also describe heaven as a place that's... Exceedingly and abundantly above all that I could ever ask or think. I've got a great imagination. I know some of you do too. And it's better than that. I can I've been to some really beautiful places. I have to say one, one of the most beautiful places I, I have ever been, and I've been to a bunch. There's a little place called Bialtenburg, Switzerland. It's right up the mountain from Interlaken. They've got three great Swiss peaks there, Jungfrau Monk and Eiger. That's where the Clint Eastwood film, the Iger Sanction, many uh decades ago, I guess now. It's just it's just heaven on earth. You're drinking your, your hot Swiss chocolate, they're out there cutting the grass with not a lawnmower, but with this blade that you you smell the grass, you hear the cows mooing in the distance, a little cowbell and the and the breeze blowing. Listen, if heaven's better than that, I can't wait to get there. I'm serious. If it's better than that, and it is, exceedingly and abundantly better than that. You pick your own place. That just happens to be one of mine. I've got some others, but you didn't come here to hear those tonight. <laughs> now, for the, specific, for, for the specifics of the reward, I can give me a whole list, but for the specifics of the reward, though, we're going to have to wait for heaven. The Bible doesn't, Paul didn't take a lot of time to describe what it's going to be, but it's going to be great. Uh, now, having said that, one of the things, too, we need to remember is that just hearing well done. It's going to be awesome, isn't it? To to stand before the one who sought me and saved me and kept me by his grace on a moment-by-moment basis for the entirety of the time I was here on earth and then looking into those everlasting eyes and having him say, you did a good job for me. Not perfect, but you did a good job. That's what I want to hear. And I know that's what you want to hear too. It will be rewarded, the second issue, it will be rewarded to those who love his appearing... Paul says, this is not just for me. Sometimes we get the idea that the apostles had this special place, and there were certain rewards that were only for them, and you had to be an apostle to get it. Sometimes people think that of pastors, and certainly there are certain things that are special rewards in certain categories there, but in terms of being rewarded, you're not penalized by virtue of whatever spiritual gift God gave you. I want you to always remember that. John Piper, the pastor from Minneapolis, wrote a book one time, and he he titled it, Gentlemen, We Are Not Professionals. What he meant by that was was Christian services crossed the board. There shouldn't be anything like a professional clergy and then the laity. Now, some clergy are supported by gifts from the congregation and from other places. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about when it comes to standing before the judgment seat of Christ you as you sit here right now now even if you don't think so you have every bit the opportunity to receive a well done and the crown of righteousness that the apostle paul did every bit the opportunity because it has to do with you loving his appearing a part of this is loving him back to, back to my my metaphor that i used a minute ago about someone leaving on an airplane you know, someone's gone for a period of time, you know, a loved one, a, a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or whoever it may be, a parent. Have, have you ever gone back to the airport after they haven't been with you for a while? And you do, you sit there in anticipation and you watch the board, you know, and that flight's finally there after having to be delayed after delay. And then, then, of course, you can't go down the gate anymore, so you're waiting at the end of the runway or right outside of customs. And you just can't, every person that walks through that door... You just can't wait to see your loved one walk as soon as they walk through the door, your, your, your face beams, they beam, and, you, and you're reunited. Well, it's because you love their appearing. Now, you love them, but you also love the fact that now you're face-to-face with them. You see? And it's a beautiful thing. And, and you can do that too, can't you? You can develop such a love for Jesus Christ that your love is, is like Paul's love was for Jesus you can do that whether your ministry is as a school teacher or whether, whether your ministry is visiting nursing homes, whether your ministry is raising your kids in a godly way in the home. You can learn to love the Lord Jesus Christ and love him so much that you can't wait to see him. Some words that really ring for me are the, are the words that the Apostle John closes the book of Revelation with, even so, Lord, come quickly. Have you ever wondered about that? The reason he says that is he's had this incredible vision of how everything's going to work out and when he gets all the way to the end of it looking back on all the things that have to happen before the millennial kingdom will begin and then finally before the eternity will begin in the sense of the new heavens and the new earth you know he looks back on it and says you know if that's what's got to happen to get us to this point right right here let's get it on come on even so lord because he he wanted to see him again If you love somebody, if you really love somebody, you want to be in their presence. Now Jesus Christ indwells you right now. You might not think about it it that way and you might not feel like he does, but it's not a feeling. It's not an experience. It's a reality. It's a position that you have in Christ. But there'll be one day where he won't just be indwelling you, but he'll be right face to face with you. I can't imagine what that's going to be like. It's going to be absolutely incredible. This person that we've Worshipped all of our lives, all of our Christian lives. Now he's in front of us. So the, the crown of righteousness is, is available to you. Not just to Paul, but to all who love his appearing. And I trust that that's you, even tonight. I won't take a show of hands because it, be, it wouldn't be fair. But in your own soul, can you raise your, the, the hand of your soul tonight? Do you, do you love his appearing? Don't do it physically. But I'm, in your own soul, can you do that tonight? I think most of you can. I think the crown of righteousness is right there within your grip. But you need to finish well and you need to take it seriously. As to the timing of this event, it, the the resurrection of the church is what is most likely in view when it, when it speaks of his appearing because he's speaking to the church. that's when he will appear. Now it, some people would take it to be the second coming. The problem I have with that is by the second coming, Paul would have already received that crown of righteousness because the judgment seat of Christ occurs before that. So I would take the the appearing in terms of the eschatological event to be the rapture of the church and then the judgment seat of Christ, which convenes immediately thereafter, or it certainly seems to. So I fought the I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now just for a few moments as we spend just the last 15 minutes of our time together tonight, I'd like you to turn back to a letter that Paul had written approximately 10 years earlier from the time that he writes this. And this is 1 Corinthians, and I'd like for you to turn to the ninth chapter. 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. While you're turning there, let me tell you, Paul has been dealing with a recalcitrant church as he deals with the Corinthians. They had a multitude of problems. They had trouble with, with uh, unity within the church in a huge way. They had a hierarchy of, of uh, interest in terms of who had baptized them and, and, and who their favorite hero with the faith was. They, they had problems with, with uh, fornication in the church and gross immorality and, and lawsuits and many other things. Certainly they had a problem with the use of liberty in the church. And in chapter 9, Paul has been talking to him about the fact that he had a lot of liberties that he didn't exercise. Because he loved them. He's going to come back to that in chapter 13 in the great love chapter to demonstrate that's what they were really missing was love. But in the, in the middle of that, he's, he does something that's a bit autobiographical and he talks about himself again. But he talks about himself in a, in a, first a way that includes larger groups and then boils down to what he has done himself. In verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run but only one receives the prize. And then he says, run in such a way as that you may win. The idea of uh, Olympic games or track and field meets or uh, the modern sporting event is not a new idea. The idea of sport is very ancient. We might They might not have had the sophistication with some of their sporting events that we do. But certainly they, they had the, what we would consider more primitive things. They ran, they jumped, they, they threw javelins, they, they threw a discus, a lot of track and field events. And those who won in those track and field events were considered celebrities back then, just as our modern-day athletes are considered celebrities today. They were well-paid back then if you won, if you performed. You were well-paid back then, just like our modern athletes are, are well-paid today. So Paul is pulling an illustration that really is timely for us in our culture, but it was very timely for them as well. They would have understood this very well because track athletes, runners, were held in high esteem. So he says again, do you, do you not know, and the idea is that you do know, do you not know that those who run in a race, they all run, but only one receives the prize. They didn't get into the postmodern and kind of school system that we have right now where everybody gets the prize. You know, we don't want anybody to have their feelings hurt because somebody didn't finish first. You know, only one person wins. Now, it might be by a nose, it might be an ancient photo finish, but only one person gets to win. And then, uh, we're not carrying that into only one person winning in the Christian life, that's not what he's saying, so don't, don't go to sleep on me too quickly. <laughs> I know it's late, and I know it's warm, but, but that's not going to be his point. His point is that everybody's going to have to compete, everybody has to strive. Verse 25, and everyone who competes in the game exercises self-control in all things. This is his point. To get to that point where you can win the race, there are some steps you had to go through first. They exercise self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he talks about what's necessary to get to the finish line, and that's self-control. Not just self-control in certain aspects of our lives. But self-control in all aspects of our lives. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say this. We need to have a purpose for living. I hope you do. And I hope within your own soul you can articulate that purpose. Why is it that you're here? I tell you, I'm not going to ask you to give your testimony. I'll tell you what mine is. I'm here for the rest of my life to spend my life, whatever time he gives me here, to bring glory to him. Whatever that is. I see that's the way, I, the reason I have understood that in my life is if I was to say I'm here the, the, for the rest of my life, my, my objective, my purpose in life is to pastor Pine Valley Bible Church. Well, then what happens if he moves me somewhere else? What happens if he makes, if he moves me, I, should, I almost said makes, but what happens if he moves me to Vijuara, India? You know? Well, is my, then my purpose dissolved? No, not if it is to glorify God with every ounce of being that I have. And yours is gonna be something like that. I don't know you may phrase it in some different ways. So it's not a specific ministry. It is what I'm doing with my life because I want to stand at the judgment seat and receive a well done. It's just that's just how I feel about it. Because you know what I gotta if it wasn't Jesus Christ, if it was some angel, if it was Michael or Gabriel or something, the judgment, it wouldn't matter to me so much. It would, but it wouldn't matter so much. I want to hear it from him. I would really love for the one who created me in the first place to feel like I had been faithful with what he gave me. So we have to have purpose. And, we, and part of that purpose is exercising self-control. It, 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 we all have choices we make all the time. You had choices what you did with your time tonight. You, you chose to come here and hear a Bible study and pray and worship in that way. And I'd say good, as long as you're focusing and you're not just here because somebody drugged you, that's great. You know, some, I know some of you are, and I can always tell whoever it is. You know, especially on Sunday morning. It, is, it, it would be funny if it wasn't said. But I mean, you see people that are just pain, just suffering painfully. You're looking at their watch. It's only been five minutes. You know. <laughs> so "How long did you say this was going to last?" It's, so, you know, 45 minutes. Oh Lord, I don't think I can make it. You know, uh, you know that's that's not exercising self-control. That's you know, but that's what we need to do. And and these athletes spent years training, just like our modern day athletes do. They spent years. They, they were separated from their families. They poured their hearts into it. They poured their lives into it. They didn't just one run, 200-meter dash. That was the standard run back then It was 200 meters. That was the stadia. That's where we get the word stadium from. They didn't just one run. They, they would run dozens per day. They would be so fatigued they'd come dragging back in, but they got the opportunity to run in the race. But what Paul's saying, here, here's what he's using this metaphor to teach. If those people will do that, They'll pour their whole lives into something so that they can win a race and get a reef which is perishable, which is made of perishable items. In fact, it was um, pine and parsley were two of the materials that that those reefs were made out of. Pine and parsley, other things too. It doesn't sound like much to devote your whole life for, does it? What, so what Paul's saying is, listen: if they would do that, to run in, to run a race so that they can win to receive this pine and parsley wreath. Now there's other things too, to be sure. There, there's there's money that they got. Sometimes they'd break a hole in the in the wall, so they had their own gate. They got celebrityship, but all that fades, doesn't it? Money gets spent. People forget about you. I, I go down here to eat at the Telewink a lot. We go on Saturday, first Saturday morning of the month. But I go down there other times too, and, and I watch people. And there's a lot of athletes that come in there. Now they don't look exactly like they used to, but I think a lot of them live in the area. But I recognize their faces. I listen to them talk. I say, "Hey, hey, aren't you?" Well, yeah, you know. But most people have forgotten who they are. Certainly, most of their money's gone, or they wouldn't be eating at the Tell Week down there with me on <laughs> a Thursday morning, you know. But it fades. It's it's. It's perishing. Even, even as they're wearing it, it already had to be perishing because they've already picked it. Now, if you'll do that, they run that way. They devote their lives to this physical task for something that is perishable. You're running this Christian life for a reward from your Savior that's imperishable. It's going to last forever. That bank account is never going to be depleted. It's never going to get rusty. It's not going to ever be forgotten. So Paul makes this personal now. Therefore, I. You see how he's changed now? It's from they now to I. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. He's got a purpose. The, the finish line's over there. He's going to start here, and he's going to get there in the shortest possible distance. He's not just running in circles, picking daisies in the meantime. He's got, he's got a purpose in mind and a goal in mind, and that's what he's going to accomplish I was on the radio many years ago with my brother, and we were actually, it was a show that wasn't about uh, Christianity, but having to be on a Christian station, and I couldn't help myself because the, the person, the lady that was on before us giving this Bible study had indicated how goals were an evil for the Christian. Goals, you know, to set a goal, to set an objective in life was an evil for the Christian. Well, I couldn't help myself. I looked at my brother and I said, may I take this if you don't mind? So we did our show. And I just spoke extemporaneously on, on how wrong that was. You know, sure, you have a goal as a Christian. It, goals are very legitimate as for Christians. Now, what your goal is may be righteous or unrighteous. But, of course, you have a goal. Paul talked about it, what his goal was. So he, he has an aim to it. So he doesn't just run aimlessly. He doesn't box in a way that he just beats the air. Those of you that have boxed, um, or done any kind of fighting like that. You know, if, if you punch and miss, you're extremely vulnerable, aren't you? That's when a lot of times people get knocked out. They punch and somebody comes over top and knocks them clean out. So you miss, it's actually, it's not just unfruitful, it can be very dangerous to miss too. So he's saying, I don't, when I take a punch, I'm punching somebody that, with a purpose behind it. And Apologies to those that don't care for boxing, but Paul does use it as an illustration on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't think he used ultimate fighting, so um, I'm not a real big fan of that, but but boxing uh, certainly was. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, just like they buffeted their body. Now, this also is, it has kind of a connotation of making it black and blue, like somebody buffets you and you, you come across bruised. Now, Paul's not saying he was not into self-flagellation like some of the early church fathers and medieval saints were. He is... He's saying, I put my body through all this. And he has. He's been beaten up more times than he can remember. But he went through that for a purpose. And this is what he says. I make it my slave. Instead of the body enslaving the soul, the soul should be in charge of the body. Lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about losing that crown of righteousness. That's laid up for him, and not only for him, but for all who love the Lord's appearance. There should be a certain warning to us, though, and it shows that there is the possibility of failure in the Christian life. We need to take that very seriously. I know some people don't, but they ought to take it very seriously. In Second Timothy chapter two, verses four through eight, Paul makes an honest and open assessment. Of his situation. He's about to die and he's okay with that. There's not a hint of fear or regret in his words. He's lived his life on the whole in such a way as would glorify God, and at this point in time, as the clock ticks down, he's confident that the Lord will reward him for his faithfulness. This reward's not for him alone, but for all who have been faithful. With the resources that God has given them. On October 25th, 1999, a plane took off from Orlando, Florida. They had two pilots and four passengers. It was a jet, I believe, and, and one of the passengers was a man named Payne Stewart. He had just won the United States Open shortly before that. Another man on the uh, plane was a man by the name of Robert Farley, or Fraley rather, Robert Fraley and then the other two passengers. Something happened not too long into the flight. The flight was going to go to Dallas. It never made it to Dallas. Most of you know the story. Many of you probably followed it on the news as the fighters took off and, and they had lost oxygen. All, all six passengers, the two pilots and the four passengers, were dead long before they ever crashed. They ended up crashing in Mino, North Dakota, South Dakota, whichever one that is. But most everybody remembers Payne Stewart because he's the most famous person on there. But Robert Fraley, was a sports agent. And he was a very well-known sports agent, had many, many clients. Payne Stewart was one of them. He was a very strong believer in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As a matter of fact, Robert Fraley's best friend was an evangelist by the name of Robbie Zacharias. And so when the, when the funeral, when it came time for the funeral, Ravi was there, as well as many of the other uh, sports celebrities that Robert had uh, represented. And one of those sports celebrities was a man by the name of Oral Hershiser. He's, I believe, a Hall of Fame pitcher now. He used to be with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Very fine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hersher, Hershiser gave up, got up to eulogize Fraley, and he tells his story. And I'll end with this tonight. He, he said that one day after he had had an extremely successful season, big contract, he called up Fraley, the sports agent, to, to tell him. They appreciated him, and and also to make a, to make the statement, he said, Hersheiser says that I told Fraley, he said, I said, it's, it's really great to have reached the top. It's really great to have become successful. And Fraley, being the believer that he was, said, wait a minute, Oral. You're in the middle of your career. You're not at the end of it. He said, you always wait till the end of it to make evaluation of how it really went he said, you want an evaluation as to how you've lived your life and whether your career in baseball was a successful one or not? He said, I'll give you four things that you can use to evaluate your life from that perspective, your baseball life. And he said, first, Oral, when you get to the end of it, can you ask yourself and can you answer in the affirmative that I have retained my faith in Jesus Christ and not only retained it, but over the course of my baseball career has it gotten stronger? The second thing he said, I want you to see if you can answer in the affirmative, have you maintained your integrity? The third thing that I want you to be able to answer in the the affirmative is, do you still love your wife, Jean, the way you did when you got married? And after your baseball career is over, are you still married to her? And finally, and perhaps one of the most piercing, the fourth thing that he said, before you can evaluate yourself as as having had a successful baseball career, when you get to the end of your baseball career, do your kids know who you are? He said, you answer yes to all four of those. Call me back when it's all over. And then you can say I had a successful career. Now, the Apostle Paul does something like that for us here tonight. You, you want to get to the end of it and, and say you've had a successful life? Have you fought the good fight? When you get to the end, can you, can you say I finished the course? Can you say I finished it with purpose? That I exercised self-control? That I put myself through whatever it took in order to accomplish the goal. Have you kept the faith? Not only have you remained faithful, but have you remained faithful to the revealed truth of the Word of God? If you've done that, when you get to the end of it, then there is something laid up for you. There is a crown of righteousness, which on that day, that he's going to award not only to the Apostle Paul, but he's going to give it to you too. And he's going to give it to all those who are sitting around you tonight that love his appearing.